Welcome to Kent Hunter's Prescriptions from a Church Doctor, presented by Church Doctor Ministries. Welcome to Episode 5 of Transforming Worldviews. Transforming Worldviews is just a wonderful art and practice for the church to help people get a biblical worldview, a biblical handle on all the aspects of church and life. In episode four, we ended by looking at this great window number five, your blessings determine your giving. Now we're going to go right on the heels of that and go to the very interesting and exciting next window, window number six, your abundance determines your possibilities. So we talked about giving in the last episode and the last window. But in this window, window number six of this episode, your abundance determines your possibilities. In this way, we get into the idea of, of tithing, of giving a percentage back to God. And so uh, we ask people in the questionnaire to do the math, not by a dollar amount, but what percentage do you give when you translate the dollars into a percentage of your income. Now, we didn't bother to get into the details of gross income or net income. We just put it as income. So there's a little bit of uh, uh, wiggle room there in our results, but uh, it's pretty much the way people think. After all, it's a worldview, not uh, specific uh, details. However, it's a worldview approach. So we ask how many uh, in a congregation give uh, a tithe, 10%. Now, there are a lot of different ways of looking at what the Bible means when it talks about a tithe. Some people feel like it's the maximum that you should give, uh, but the biblical evidence uh, really seems like it is the minimum. Uh, In fact, Everything that you give under 10% and up to and including 10% is called a tithe. But sometimes the Bible talks about tithes and offerings, and an offering is anything you give above 10%. So ironically, there are people in every church that give whatever the amount they think they give, turns out translated into percentages, let's say 5% of their income. So they think they're giving an offering. They call it an offering. Uh, They put it in an offering plate or basket or whatever is passed around or however you do it, online or whatever. But the the point is is that they call it an offering, but it's not an offering. Uh, If they give 5% of their income back to God, then it's half a tithe. It's 50% of the minimum. And so there are, there are really three avenues of giving in the Scripture. There's the tithe, which most scholars consider to be the minimum that you give, and that goes to your church. As God blesses you, you add to that offering, so you go beyond 10% and work your way higher as God Uh, blesses you, you bless back, you do the math every single year, 
and say, okay, at your end, here we are. Uh, we, we've come this far. We're going to be, God's been generous with us, our health, our, you know, not just money, but all the things in our life, our kids, or, you know, all those things. And uh, yeah, we we're gonna we're gonna trust God and move another percentage or two or three or whatever in a positive direction, and give not only a tithe but an offering. And then beyond the tithe and offering, there's a third element of biblical giving, which is alms. A L M S alms. And words you don't hear much anymore, actually. But the truth is, it might be better translated today: a door offering. That is where there's an immediate need or someone's going on a mission trip or whatever. And after the worship service and the collection of tithes and offerings, you just say, hey, there'll be a basket at the door and on your way out. Give even something extra to this uh, unique mission or ministry or this family that house was burned out in our community. They don't even go to our church, but we want to bless those people in some way. They're going to have a lot of needs, and so let's uh, let's do it. You know, I'll tell you a little secret. I've never said this in public or on a mechanism like a podcast before, but all my life I've wanted to find a church that every Sunday asks me to give money at the door for some special cause. I can't believe that any church in any community wouldn't have something that they could give to every single week that goes to something beyond the normal ministry of the church. Uh, There just has to be something. I would like to belong to that kind of church. And as many churches I've consulted and visited, workshops I've done at churches beyond the consulting, churches I've visited while traveling, honestly, I have never been at a church that every Sunday, 52 Sundays a year, practices alms giving or whatever you want to call it special needs giving and even though it would cost me if i could find a church like that i'd join it <laughs> especially if it was nearby my home i have never seen a church like that but i just can't understand when you read the scripture and you know the practice of those christians and they weren't in a wealthy society like we are i just don't understand why I guess as I think about our own ministry in church, Dr. Misery, I wish there was an alms ministry every week at some church for for ministries that want to help churches become more effective for the Great Commission. But, oh well, that's what it is. It is what it is. So, we ask people to do the math, translate what you give every week to church, and what percentage is that? And how many of the people give at least 10% of their income a tithe or more? In fact, every church we consult, we ask people to do that math. And then we report it back to the church. I think it kind of wakes up a few people to say, well, what's that all about? How's that in the Bible? Anyway, here's the results. Your abundance determines your possibilities. How many people give a tithe or more? Only 25%. One out of four. Every church, cross-denominations, non-denominational, independent, charismatic, you name it, all these churches, the average across the board is 25%. One out of four of the people give more 
10% or more. 10% or more. So uh, it's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, churches don't have money issues. They have giving issues. Because your abundance determines your possibilities financially. It's the way God works. Tithing is not a bill you owe. Tithing is planting a seed to grow. Think about it. So we did some further research, and I've got more data about this particular research item, and that is almost half of the people, 47%, give 5% or less. Isn't that interesting? Sad, really sad, because it's just not what God teaches. It's not good for those people, let alone it cripples what their church can do. The other thing is so much effort is given to campaigns, giving campaigns, or special appeals, spaghetti dinners, feeding people that are already overweight to get money, and, and invite your neighbor so that we can, we can get money out of your neighbor who we've never invited to church, but we're going to invite him to a spaghetti dinner at the church. That ought to really get him excited about how gracious God is. It's just crazy. If we just did what God said, we wouldn't need to do all this stuff. We could put all that energy into something that would be much better for reaching our community for Jesus. You see, at the end of the day, the key is worldview. And the challenge is not money. It's not about money. It's about giving. Because you can't outgive God. It says that in the Bible. The worldview is that God is a God of abundance, not a God of scarcity. And it's a matter of faith to put God in charge of your finances and trust that he will supply all your needs like the Bible says. So it's a faith issue, not a finance issue. So we don't have a money challenge, but we have a giving challenge. I like the saying someone once said, Money is like fertilizer. It's not good unless it's spread around. <laughs> so that's window number six. Your abundance determines your possibilities. Not your requirements to give. Not the law, but the possibilities of the power of the gospel. Window number seven. Oh, I like this one. It's a touchy one. Your past determines your future. Your past determines your future. As a worldview, you could say the way you look at your past determines your future. I bet sometime in your church you've heard these words. Yeah, but we've always done it this way. <laughs> yep, that's right. We research the sacred territory of tradition. But you know, in truth, if you look at the scripture carefully, there's a big difference between the word tradition and the concept of traditionalism. Those are two very different things. Let me explain. Tradition is a living faith of the dead. 
It's remembering dead people and the faith they had and the spiritual energy that it gives you. My dad died when I was in college. He never got to see that I was ordained as a pastor, which is his greatest dream. But he was so valuable in my life. When I was young, real young, he wasn't a Christian or he didn't show any signs, didn't worship, stayed home. My mom took my sister and I to church. But my sister had some medical issues and I saw him down on his knees and then he became the spiritual leader of our family. And when I was a teenager, it didn't matter how late I was out the night before on Saturday night, he promised me he'd get me up for church and we sat right in the front seats right underneath the pulpit so if i was going to drift off i was going to drift off right in front of the pastor but he was evangelical about it he was so good i remember my dad when the new testament and psalms first came out in the good news translation i don't know i was in high school probably that was a long time ago but but when that first came out, it came out in paperback. There was no Old Testament yet, but just that. And he came home with a shopping bag full of those New Testaments with Psalms. And I thought, like, Dad, what what are you doing? I mean, you only need one to read. And if you're going to give one to all of us in the family, that's only four total, including you. So, like, what's up with that? And he said... The shop where I work, he was a mechanic that worked on cash registers back when they had cash registers that needed mechanics. <laughs> they weren't electronic back then. He said, a lot of those guys, they don't know anything about the Bible. And if they do go to church, they don't read the Bible. But this is really easy to read. It's like modern language. And I'm going to hand them out to all the guys at work. And... I know he didn't do that to prove something to me, but it planted a seed in my life that had a lot to do with me giving my life to ministry for God. Well, the reason I'm telling you about my dad is that's tradition. Tradition is the living faith I have of my dead father. That example of faith that inspired me and continues to inspire me to this very second that I'm speaking this now. I'm picturing my dad. I'm picturing that bag of Bibles and many of the other things, him getting me out of bed in the morning after I was out all night with my buddies. Um, yeah, that's the living faith of the dead. It lives. You want to know where to find that in the Bible? One of the places is Hebrews 11, where there's this catalog of the heroes of the faith who trusted God and left a witness to give us hope in our faithful God, that he comes through, that he's a real God, that he really performs, that he really cares about us, and he's really going to take care of us. And he wants us to, to have the courage that those great heroes of the faith had to go out there and risk everything for God and get it done, that great commission to stretch ourselves beyond our comfort zones. That is tradition. So what is traditionalism? Oh, something quite very different. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. That's when people put their faith in customs, 
in habits, in certain ways of worship, in certain dress styles, in certain ways of seating. You know, I just can't imagine. I've seen some new churches built where they have pews. You know, I've never seen a new football stadium that had pews. I've never been on a plane that has pews. We have invented some new ways of seating people since pews. It's a feel-good form of seating that people hang on to. And so new people who come to Christ come in and they look at benches with backs that, like, this is weird. This is not the way people sit these days. Now, I know there are lots and lots of churches that aren't in the pew ministry, but there are so many that still have pews. I just, do you know the history of pews? You know, many of the Protestant churches that are churches of the Reformation, at the time of the Reformation, people in churches, whether they were Catholic churches or Reformed churches, they stood during the worship service. Those cathedrals, they they just had hard floors, and they stood for the worship services. Then after a while, somebody decided to put benches in there. Now, in America, the Puritans, when they came over, they had benches. They didn't have backs on them. But, oh, with the ingenuity of Americans, we we put backs on them. Yeah. And with further ingenuity, we padded them so you could sleep during the sermon. Be comfortable. Yeah. But that's not the way people sit nowadays. That doesn't help make the space so that you can use it a number of different ways and get good stewardship management out of it. You know, get the bigger bang for the buck and use the room for other things. Oh, man, it's just crazy. And yet people just absolutely defy. I know churches where we've recommended they have pews that that will pinch your butt. They've got cracks in them. And people complain, but they don't want the pews removed. Literally, I've got the name of a church in the city on my mind right now. I'm not going to do a nasty thing and tell you. But I'll tell you what, I know churches where they can't get rid of these old pews. People are willing to pay for new chairs and more comfortable chairs that don't pinch your butt. It's just incredible. And there are people that are married to those stupid pews. That's traditional. It is the dead faith of the living people. They have faith in those dumb pews. They're attached to the pews like they really ought to be attached to Jesus and the Bible and the mission. It's crazy. People get attached to customs. People singing songs called hymns. The word hymn does nothing to people that come in as new Christians. Some of the words in those those songs absolutely are not used anymore in the English language. There are churches that have to continue to use the Lord's Prayer with thy kingdom come, thy will be done. You know what they say? If you want to know the real words that have meaning to people, and if you want to present Jesus, 
in the style of those words. It's the words they dream in and the words they make love in. I don't know anybody that dreams in Elizabethan English. Maybe Shakespeare did, but he's been gone a long time. We're long past that. And, you know, I studied Shakespeare, and I had a whole year of Shakespeare, and I love Shakespearean plays. I love the genius of Shakespeare. I've been to where they gave plays in England. I've been to that, and I've been to a Shakespeare play there. But it's an art form and a history lesson, but it's not the way to communicate the living God to living people. Now, I didn't do any research on, you know, what people say when they make love, but I'm really pretty sure that, you know, in a very warm and intimate embrace, husbands and wives don't say, I love thou. I just don't believe it happens anywhere, maybe anywhere in the world. I have some Amish friends I could ask, but it's a little personal. But people get so attached to things. That's traditionalism. And they're so attached that they're going to die on that hill. You're not going to change this program. You're not going to renovate this building. And even pastors get stuck in this. we got pastors that wear things to lead worship from the 15th century. Some unchurched person comes in there and sees this guy and says, What's that guy doing in a dress? It's weird. Why would you do that? Sure, it had symbolism, and I know what the symbolism was. But it doesn't communicate today, and unless you're going to communicate all of that every time you wear it in every service to everybody, then you're just prancing around in a dress looking funny. And you know what? The incarnation of Jesus demands that we translate Jesus into the medium of the people we're trying to reach. And that's everything. The medium has a message too. And you don't want to make the message that Jesus is foreign, different, or old, like centuries old. And that is traditionalism. I get a little hyped about this because if you are a missionary or if you ever become a missionary, And I don't mean the occupation or vocation of a missionary. I mean if you learn to be a missionary to the people in your social network. Missionaries, by definition, have to put Christianity into the culture of the people they're trying to reach. The more adult Christian, the more processed Christian, the one that's the older, the more mature Christian, always subordinates the traditionalism stuff to the preference of the young, new Christian. So let me give you an example. I have a a dear friend in Omaha, Nebraska, who spent years as a children's minister And they built a great children's church in their building. The seats fit the size of the children. They have age-graded seats. The 
information, the way it was presented, was at the level of the children who went to children's church. The length of teaching and sharing fit the attention length of children, which is far less than adults. He would encourage, after some of the worship songs, and when before they got into the preaching of the sermon, he would encourage the parents to release their children to the children's church. And they had safe ways of making sure that the parents could get their children back and the right parents and the children were safe and all that stuff, of course. And once in a while he would run into parents that I'd run into as a consultant who said, we worship as a family, we want our children with us in worship. And I said to him, I said, Roger, what do you tell people like that? He said, oh, we believe that 100%. But since your children can't be adults, but you can understand what goes on in children's church, come and sit on the floor with your kids and worship as a family. That is, that would be great. That's, that is a great commitment you have to family. The more mature Christian always subordinates his or her preferences to the less mature person. I just think that is so awesome. So we have to give up to go up. And if we're going to be mission-minded, yeah, your past determines your future. Think about it. What did all those heroes of the faith that are in Hebrews 11 give up to go up? Hmm? Rick Warren once said, you know, Jesus reserved his most severe words for the richest religious traditionalists. When the Pharisees asked, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? Jesus replied, why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? Matthew 15, 2-3. Rick Warren continues from the book, The Purpose Driven Church, fulfilling God's purpose must always take priority over preserving tradition. I like what Robert Schuller said years ago. He said that it takes guts to leave ruts. <laughs> it sounds like Bob Schuller. <laughs> Art Holtz once said, the only difference between a rut and a grave is the length, the depth, and how long you're in it. <laughs> you know, there's amazing discovery we made in our research here. There's a link between traditionalism and salvation by works. In other words, people have such hope in those things, traditionalism, those forms, that it's actually a work for them, and it's part of their salvation. Oh, it wouldn't be like church without pews. I've heard people say that. I've heard younger people say that. And so we ask people about, do you trust in good works? In a, in a way that we asked it, wasn't exactly that way, but we discovered that 40% across the board in the churches we surveyed actually trust in their own good works rather than salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Yep, that's where it comes from. Well, you can be religious and not have faith 
Religion is all the mechanics of church life, all the mechanics of church. But you know what? They have to change all the time. All the stuff we do has to change how we do it. Not the faith, but faith is trusting in God in a living relationship with Jesus, looking at faith and reaching out with that faith to others. That's what we call tradition. Bless you, and we'll talk some more. We'll be together again as we move to our last episode, episode number six. You have been listening to Kent Hunter's Prescriptions from a Church Doctor, presented by Church Doctor Ministries. If you've liked this episode, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to hear future episodes. Check out Kent Hunter's new book, Who Broke My Church? Seven Proven Strategies for Renewal and Revival, available now wherever books are sold.